Good evening. Uh, thanks, Roy. It's great to have you back. And uh, it's also great to see Isabel here again as well. You know, you've been in our thoughts and prayers, Isabel. Uh, three years ago, uh, I ran my first and my only marathon. Belfast, May 2006. The problem, I did virtually no training for it. And the result was <laughs> quite sad, actually. The result was I struggled to finish. And I actually ended up being unable to walk properly for days. In fact, it was about three days before I could actually get up and down curbs. And I always had to look for, you know, the little bits that goes down like that. Lindsay, could I borrow your violin for a moment? That'd be okay. Well, just as Lindsay's bringing that up to you, what I would, uh, what I'd like to do now is actually inspire you. Thanks, Lindsay. I would uh, like to inspire you with a very particular rendition of Johann Sebastian Bach's Sonata in G Major for the violin. And uh, what I would like you to do, and please, if everybody could join me in this, I'd like you to just sit back, but I want you to close your eyes. Okay, it's, it's, I'm insisting on this. Okay, I want, you to enclose your, I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to sort of allow the music to stir your emotions. So I'm not going to begin until everybody's eyes are closed, okay? But if you could just do that for me, please. Thank you very much. There's some people still looking. Please, I need you to, okay? very much indeed. That was great. Lindsay Cooper. The point is, I have no clue how to play the violin. But do you know something I would love to? I really would. It's, it's been great having Lindsay come to the church recently. And she only just started coming not that long ago and we've got her roped in to play in virtually every single service. But I really respect and admire people like Lindsay who can play an instrument like the violin the way Lindsay can play it. And there are times, I must admit, I sit whenever I watch really great musicians and, and I imagine myself playing the way they play, with freedom and with expression. I'd love to be able to do it. But I also know that to play the violin like Lindsay takes a lot more than just desire on my part that it's going to require more of me than just thinking about it or imagining me being able to do it or admiring people who can and do it. And the fact is that if I had picked up that violin, having never taken a lesson in my life, never practiced a note in my life, and being able to play like Lindsay, then that would have been slightly strange, to say the least, because nobody expects it to happen. I certainly didn't expect to play any sort of recognisable tune. But here's the strange thing. We all know you've got to train to run marathons. We're absolutely convinced of the need to practice in order to play a musical instrument. But when it comes to our spiritual lives, we seem to adopt a different approach. We sometimes give the impression that we and others can grow spiritually and develop character and endurance and wisdom and purity and we can overcome temptation and we can become more and more like Jesus simply on the basis of desire. 
And if you want to run well, if you want to run better, if you want to be more effective, if you want to enjoy your spiritual life more, if you want your life song to actually sing to God, then I want to suggest that you need to train and you need to practice more intentionally. Someone has said that we've got to train to run marathons, climb mountains and play instruments. That's an accepted fact. But the idea of training for the spiritual life is a neglected concept. And one of the ways, possibly in fact a key way, that we train for spiritual growth and development is via the practice of spiritual disciplines. And that's really the series we're launching out on this evening. And the whole issue of spiritual disciplines is not a new one by any stretch of the imagination. And I know there are some people here, and you've heard me share some of what I'm going to share tonight before. And therefore, what I'm really hoping to do during Lent this year is actually remind us of those practices that have been given to us to feed and to nurture and to transform our internal relationship with God. But they don't just transform our internal relationship with God. They also influence our external relationship with one another. And so I'm going to spend the next few Sunday nights revisiting and re-emphasizing those practices. And I'm going to show you the list of them in a moment. But those practices that actually contribute to a dynamic personal relationship with God Almighty. But they also have this profound ability to impact your external relationships with your families and with your friends and with your colleagues and with those in our wider community. But one of the dangers with this subject is that whenever it comes to spiritual disciplines, we tend to think, you know, they're, they're only for the really serious. They're only for those who are totally committed. And yet, as Richard Foster in that classic book, Celebration of Discipline, writes, spiritual disciplines are not for spiritual giants. But they're for people who have jobs and who care for kids and who must wash dishes and mow lawns. And I don't know how you feel whenever you hear the term spiritual disciplines and you think, yes, there are those who seem to be able to engage in those practices, but quite honestly, they're not for me. And we'll tease out some of the reasons in a moment why we tend to think they're not for me. But here's a list of them. It's not an exhaustive list. But here are the practices that make up or should make up our training schedules. Because I honestly believe, and I'm speaking here from personal experience, and I've shared a little bit of this already, that if we, and whenever we, try to live the Christian life without the regular and consistent practice of these disciplines, then our internal relationship with God suffers. Our internal relationship with God can become stale. Our inner resource tank can feel empty. We often sense that we lack that maybe spiritual passion and commitment that we once had. And in addition, our external relationships begin to feel a bit strained and a bit superficial and a bit difficult. And I know in my own life 
That as I look back over it at various points in time, whenever I have lost sight of these, and I seem to keep losing sight of these, that I know my internal relationship with God suffers, and my external relationship with others suffers as well. If you were here last Sunday morning, we looked at the importance of a guarded heart. And we spent some time looking at this proverb, which I've described as my life verse. Above all else, guard your heart, for it affects everything you do. And I shared last Sunday morning how on one occasion, during my sabbatical in 2001, somebody just looked me in the eye and they said, David, what are you doing to guard your heart? And I didn't have an answer, or at least an adequate answer. But after a lot of reflection and a lot of discussion with others, I realized, or I realized eight years ago, that one of the key ways, the central ways, one of the critical ways for me to guard my heart was through the practice of spiritual disciplines. But it was also during that time in 2001 that I came across an alternative name for them. This name, Holy Habits, which I have found really helpful. Because whenever I use the term spiritual disciplines, there tends to be a rather negative reaction within me and also I realise within many people as well. Because the idea of discipline doesn't sit with us. It's not a popular idea. And even though discipline, according to God's word, is a life-enhancing necessity, There's almost an entire book of the Bible devoted to stressing the importance of discipline in our lives. But even though we know, or we should know, that it is a life-enhancing necessity, we still tend to recoil from the word discipline, and we struggle with it. Whereas this term, holy habits, seems a bit softer and less threatening. But what really appeals to me about this term is what it communicates. A habit is defined as an action or a pattern of behaviour that is repeated so often that it becomes typical of somebody. An action or a pattern of behaviour that is repeated so often that it becomes typical. Now smoking can become a habit. But prayer can also become a habit. Smoking, a destructive habit. Prayer, a holy, constructive habit habit and I don't know about you but I long for these habits to become typical of me that as people observe my life and get a window into my life that some of these things would become so obvious they'd just be typical of me so why do we do them because that, that, that's the issue and as I say we're going to explore this a bit more why do we do them well I want to suggest that we do them in order to train more effectively for the spiritual life. We do them in order to nurture our internal relationship with God and our external relationship with others. We do them in order to guard our hearts and we do them so that they may become or might become typical of us. But there's another reason. And it's maybe the most important reason why we engage in these. As you look down that list, they were all maybe apart from one, modelled and practised by Jesus. And hopefully as we go through this series, that will become so apparent to us. 
Do you know, as you read the Gospels, you quickly, and you actually can't help but notice that Jesus made choices in his life to set aside time and space to be alone with his Father. And if we are going to take seriously the call to follow in Christ's footsteps, to deny ourselves and take up our cross and walk as he walked, then I honestly believe we need to be people who are characterized by these. If you were here this morning, we looked at Mark 1 and we just touched on verse 31 where it says, The next morning Jesus woke long before daybreak and he went out alone to the wilderness to pray. But that wasn't an isolated incident. Because Luke actually says this, that Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness to pray. Time alone with his father was a practice. It was a discipline in his life. A few years ago, I came across a description of Jesus that that has become very precious to me. A description of Jesus that is probably one of my favourite descriptions of Jesus. One that not only has become precious, but has become really helpful to me as I think about my life and as I think about life in the 21st century as well. And it's a phrase that was coined by Ajit Fernando, and I'm sure some of you have come across him before, Director of Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka for years. You see, one of the dangers, or another danger, of looking at a list like this, and considering these disciplines, and reflecting on the times that Jesus spent alone with his Father, is that we often think, do you know, these are fine. But if I'm really honest, if I'm really honest, They only work for people who've got time in their hands. For most of us, these are beyond our reach. Because the majority of us don't have time. None of us will probably question their importance. Nobody tends to query their value in anybody's life. But it's actually finding time to do them is where we struggle. Because we all lead busy, busy lives. And I know a congregation like this, there are constant demands on your time. There is always somebody else to see. There's always another phone call to make. There's always another email to send. There's always another problem to face. There's always another issue to deal with. There's always another dilemma to be engaged in. And therefore, the idea of being able to carve out space, regular space and time to practice these, to be silent, to seek solitude, to meditate, to pray at any sort of extensive level is quite honestly an unrealistic expectation. The intention is there. And I know this in my own life, and I know having spoken to lots of people about this subject, the intention is always there. I never meet somebody who says, I don't want to do these things. I always meet people who say, I know I should do these things. It's interesting, even praying before the service, the prayer that someone prayed was this, I, we, we keep messing up in this God, but I know we need to strive after these. The intention is always there, but the pace of life just dictates it for so many of us. But here's how Ajit Fernando describes Jesus. A contemplative activist. And I love that. 
And whenever Archbishop Donald Coogan looked at Mark's gospel and he reflected on it, he said this, there would seem to have been a kind of rhythm about the life of Jesus that needs to be a feature of our lives. There was withdrawal and work, withdrawal and work, withdrawal and engagement. Jesus lived an incredibly busy life. And I know I I often don't take that seriously, I don't think. The demands on Jesus' time were relentless. And again, if you were here this morning, we picked up a little on this. Because in Mark chapter 1, certainly a huge section of it, it all happens within the context of one day. And so he walks to Capernaum. There's no cars, no public transport. He teaches. He's confronted by an evil spirit. He has to deal with that. He's back on foot again. He makes his way to Simon and Andrew's house. He attends to a sick woman. He gets something to eat. Then a whole crowd shows up at his door asking to be healed, asking asking Jesus to deliver people from being possessed by evil spirits. And Jesus finally, as we said this morning, must have gone to bed at some point. But then we read Mark 1.31 that very early the next day Jesus got up. But if you read verse 36, you discover that even though Jesus had gone away to a quiet place to be by himself, to pray to his father, Simon comes looking for him and says, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. Even though I know you want time alone, you don't have the luxury of time alone. We need you. Everybody needs you. The demands on Jesus' time were unbelievable. There was lots of activity, constant demands, but Mark conveys that in the midst of all of that, he made time. He took time to be alone with his Father. Times of contemplation. Yes, activity, but then retreat. Yes, engagement, but then withdrawal. And it's that rhythm of life that I know I've got to mirror, I've got to reflect. Because I tend to try to be busy or imply that I'm really busy or fill my life with so many different things and yet I seem to struggle to withdraw to be with my father. And unless I do, I'm really going to struggle to practice these despite my intention. I'm really going to struggle to feed what often feels like my forgotten soul. Jesus was a contemplative activist. If we want to become more and more like him in public, which again I know is the heart of many of us, then we've got to become more and more like Jesus in private. To become more like Jesus when the spotlight is on, we've got to become more like Jesus when the spotlight is off. Mark Buchanan in, in his book that made a huge impact on me, says this, we will never be like Jesus on the battlefield unless we become like Jesus in the boot camp. And you know, as we observe the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, we constantly encourage a man who was given the great acts of humility and kindness and patience and power and compassion and insight and wisdom And I know I long for that. I long to reflect the character of Jesus, the attitude of Jesus, the actions of Jesus. But what I sometimes think I forget is that they all took place, all that activity of Jesus took place in the context of a life that was deeply characterized by contemplation. A life that was characterized by spiritual disciplines, by holy habits, by time alone 
with his father. And there is a brilliant example of this in Mark chapter 9. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Mark chapter 9. It's a familiar incident, but a really interesting one when it comes to the issue of spiritual disciplines. Now this might be a slightly alternative take on this passage. Just to give you a little bit of background, Jesus has said that some of the people who are standing with him at this particular moment will not die until they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. And six days later, Jesus takes Peter and James and John up a mountain and they certainly get a glimpse of the kingdom of God as Jesus is transfigured. Am I ringing a wee bit? Just turn me down a wee toady bit, Dave, could you? But they get a glimpse of Jesus and his kingdom as he gets transfigured and his appearance it says is changed and his clothing takes on a completely new look and in addition in that incident in Mark chapter 9 two Old Testament heroes of the Christian faith appear Moses and Elijah and they begin talking with Jesus and then there is this voice from heaven that speaks again we heard a voice from heaven speak this morning but there's a voice from heaven speaks again and it says this is my beloved son listen to him And Jesus and his three disciples descend the mountain. And at the bottom of the mountain they discover a crowd of people involved in a major row. And in the middle of the crowd stands a dad. A dad with a demon-possessed son. And he's being viciously thrown to the ground and he's frothing at the mouth. And the dad has come and the dad has asked some of Jesus' other disciples, not the three that were up with Jesus on the mountain, but some of his other disciples, they said, listen, we want you to cast this demon out. But it seems that the other disciples of Jesus were unable to do it. They sincerely want to, but they simply can't deliver. And the disciples are now caught up in an argument and they're arguing with the teachers of the law who similarly don't have any power or ability to do anything at this particular moment. And so Jesus walks into the midst of the crowd and he asks the disciples and he asks the teachers, what are you arguing about? And the whole situation is explained to Jesus. And eventually Jesus rebukes the spirit and he commands it to leave the boy. And the evil spirit shrieks as it violently leaves the boy for dead. Or so it seems, until Jesus reaches out, takes him by the hand and lifts him up. And then we read verses 28 and 29 of Mark chapter 9. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. Why couldn't we drive it out, Jesus? Why didn't we have the power for this, Jesus? And Jesus replies, this kind only comes out by prayer. And in some manuscripts it also says by prayer and fasting. Now one of the most curious things about this incident, and there are a number of curious things, is that there's no record of Jesus actually praying. Not here. Not now. Jesus doesn't excuse himself and go and pray for half an hour. He doesn't go and fast for a day. He just stands and he delivers. Why? How? Well, it could be 
that Jesus doesn't need to pray at that particular moment because his entire life is underpinned by a well-established pattern of prayer. Jesus consistently spent time in the quiet place, time alone with his Father. The needle on his inner resource tank never sat in the red zone. He was constantly refueling, constantly investing in his interior relationship with his Father. And you know, how often do I feel helpless and speechless in the face of evil, in the context of brokenness and sickness? Sometimes never quite sure what to do, never quite sure what to say. What am I going to say to this messed up, beaten up, hurting, suffering person? And I'm lost for words. And I go to delve into the inner resource tank and it just feels empty. And then whenever it's just God and me on our own, I feel as if I'm saying, God, why can't I, your disciple, do something here? And then those words echo in my mind. This kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And David, you want to imitate me on the battlefield. You want to imitate me when the spotlight is on, when the crisis hits. But the question remains, are you prepared to imitate me in the boot camp? In the private place? John Ortberg describes following Jesus in these terms. Following Jesus simply means learning from him how to arrange my life around activities that enable me to live like him. And maybe the activities that enable me to live like Jesus are these. The spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith that need to be weaved into the rhythm of my life. And two other things as we introduce this series on the practice of holy habits. The first is that these habits do require discipline. They involve our wills. They they involve a resolve of the will and sometimes even a breaking of them. But I wonder, especially if you've been a Christian for many years, have you ever been here before where you say, "I I will pray more? I will fast. I will seek solitude. I will discover what it means to be silent. Problem is that for most of us, our won't power is stronger than our will power. And therefore, we need a different approach. We need a fresh perspective. Because will power alone is generally insufficient to motivate us. And it certainly won't sustain us. And what we need to discover is that spiritual transformation, it's not a matter of trying harder, it's a matter of training wisely. There's a huge difference between training to do something and trying to do it. This is actually not about trying harder, but it's about developing a better training schedule. And secondly, and I need to be very clear about this, this is not about legalism. This is not about earning anything from God. Because this is one of the huge dangers with this subject. We think God may or will or could love me more if I practice these. And if I don't practice these, then somehow God will love me less. 
And one of the problems that we often encounter and struggle to reconcile is the difference between effort and earning in the context of grace. Grace and earning are opposites. Grace and effort are allies. Do you know, working for your salvation is a heresy. Working out your salvation is explicit biblical teaching. What does it actually mean to work out your salvation? Sometimes we do make this mistake of contrasting grace with effort. We say, I live under grace and therefore I don't need to, stri- I don't need to make an effort. Let me just give you a few references in the New Testament. Let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Make every effort to live at peace with everyone. Make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with God. Or Peter's classic piece of advice at the beginning of his second epistle. God's divine power has given us everything we need for godliness and for life. Everything we need. But then he says this, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith. And then he lists a whole range of qualities. You know, trying to earn anything in the Christian life is a nonsense. Trying to make an effort in the Christian life is an absolute necessity. And holy habits will never become habits unless we make the effort to practice them. Unless we set time aside. Unless I get up early. Unless I carve space into my schedule. Unless I train wisely. They just will never feature. And as I finish, one of the the questions I get asked a lot when it comes to this is, okay, let's talk timing. Because how often and for how long should you spend time in silence, in solitude, in prayer, in fasting, in reading, in meditation, all of this? Like, did Jesus pray every day? Well, possibly because he probably followed the usual Jewish pattern of prayer morning and evening. Did Jesus get up every morning to seek solitude with his Father? Well, we don't know. All I do know is that these practices don't just happen. You've got to take time to practice them, and that often involves sacrifice and cost, and it cost Jesus to spend time to be alone with his Father. People didn't always understand it. People got frustrated whenever Jesus seemed to do it. But for Jesus, it seems his personal interior relationship with his father was a priority that needed constant attention and nourishment. And I know that seasons of life dictate here. And circumstances of life dictate. And I know it is so easy for this whole issue to become a whole guilt trip. And we end up beating ourselves up because we don't spend enough time in this. But all I want to say is this. If I'm going to train wisely for the spiritual life, if I'm going to guard my heart, if these things are going to become habits, if they're going to become typical of me and I'm going to reflect the life of a contemplative activist, then I know that I need to make every effort to ensure that they remain a constant in my life. And over the next month, we're going to look specifically at about six of them. And starting next Sunday evening, we're going to look at silence and solitude. And so it could be a quiet service.